Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Salem's Lot Part 2, chapters 11 through 13. Let's start the show! Ben, Susie, and Matt share stories and come up with a plan. Ben, with the help of Dr. Cody, will look for evidence of a vampire. Matt will research vampires. And Susie will, I guess, sit tight for the time being. Ben and Dr. Cody succeed, but not the way they planned. Matt finds out a lot about vampires and has a talk with Father Callahan. Susie doesn't sit tight and gets to meet Mark Petrie and Straker and Barlow. Uh oh. Uh oh is right. Lots of exciting stuff in this chapter, or this section of the book. Yeah. The cotet has been broken. Oh. Before it even had a chance to form. Yeah, really. I, I think so. I mean, I've been wondering for the last few episodes how Ben and Mark get together, right? We're told yeah. in the in the prologue that the two of them are gonna meet at some point. And then the first person that Mark meets of the cotet is not Ben, but Susie. And then that doesn't go so well. Yep. They have a very brief partnership. Well, to be fair, after their par- they have their brief partnership, they go their separate ways. And then Susie tries to bring the partnership back. But Mark, yeah. <laughs> Mark will have it's none like, of it. Come on, let's get the band back together. <laughs> oh, Well, I think we did want to talk about that there are a number of lenses that we're looking through these characters yes. in this chapter. So. This section, really, all of the main characters come to the forefront. We spend a great deal of time with them, and they all have different approaches on how they're dealing with this. So this is really where all the characters are starting to come to grips with the fact that Salem's Lot has been invaded by vampires, or a vampire, but it's slowly turning into a city of the undead. Yep. And how they deal with that really is a reflection on their characters and gives King a lot of room to play with ideas that he has about faith, society, family, as well as just sort of how different people would deal with horror that comes into their life. Yeah, it's like the the same circumstances presented to all of these characters, but because of who they are, their reactions are very different. For example, like Ben is a writer. He has, or his greatest strength is his imagination. So that gives him a certain perspective on this. He wants to investigate. He's open to things happening, even if they are supernatural or seemingly impossible. But he wants to have some investigation around it. He wants to prove it to himself, if not to anybody else. And that's what leads him to take the action that he takes. Yeah, and he's got a brush with the supernatural in the past from his former time in Salem's Lot at the Martin House, where he saw the the ghost or the body or whatever he saw. So I think he his mind's a little more open to that. And that's probably what makes him a good writer is that he's got this open-mindedness and can have alternate thoughts in his in his head. Right. And he is paired up with Susan, who even after hearing the stories from what's happened with Matt and what's happened with Ben, still doesn't really believe that there are vampires. And if there are, she's like, why are we beating around the bush? We should just go confront them. And let's go up to the front door and knock on the door and say, hey, here we are. And are you a vampire? Yeah, because nothing bad could happen if you do that, right? No, and we could see her journey in this section particularly. She starts to question that a little bit, 
when she gets close to the house, I mean, she doesn't do a full frontal approach and knock on the door. She does try to sneak through the backwoods and not be seen. And she's practical enough that, hey, I don't think there's vampires, but let me bring the stake just in case. Yeah. But, you know, she really is willing to to get up front and try to figure this out because certainly there's got to be a reason for all this that's much more simple and easy to understand. Yeah, very much so. And just like Ben, who needs to do some kind of investigation to prove things to himself, there's Dr. Cody. And when Ben and Dr. Cody are working together, they carry out Ben's investigation. And Dr. Cody is a physician. He's an empiricist, according to Matt's description of him. He remembers Dr. Cody when Dr. Cody was his student. And therefore, he's going to take a scientific approach. He's going to be even more rigorous in his approach than Ben needs to be. So they sit up and wait for this dead body to maybe wake up at, at dusk. Yeah. And and Matt, even though he says he's like, I, I'm sure we'll find out what Dr. Cody, he's like, back when I had him as a kid, he might have been more open to this, but med school probably knocked that all out of him. Mm. And you see that all the way up until right before sunset, Dr. Cody's watching TV and just sort of sitting back and nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And then he starts to feel something. And it's only until it affects him that then he's like, oh, wait a minute. Yep. Maybe there is something going on here. And then it's interesting, the reactions in the aftermath. He gets bit and he does go into doctor mode right away, right? Mm-hmm. Like, give me the shot. I need the tetanus shot. Give me the, give me the holy yeah. water. Let's, let's, let's cleanse out this wound. Like, he still takes it from a, a medical profession almost. Like, all right, there's probably some sort of germs in me. Let me get rid of that. I still need the tetanus shot. We'll deal with this. But. Oh, yeah, there's definitely vampires now. I can see it. Uh Uh-huh. And I wonder if his overly uh, scientific approach is what led to his own downfall, because if they thought that there's a chance that this dead person was going to sit up and be a vampire, why not strap her to the table? Why not tie her hands and and feet down? Instead, they're just like, yeah, we'll we'll just sit here. No way to stop her from moving, no way to react, no way to defend ourselves. And then as soon as she sits up, it's like go time and yeah, it's too late. It's too late. They're immediately overwhelmed. Vampire go time. Now, uh, another member of what we're calling the Cotet is Matt and he is the teacher of course. And so what action does he take? Uh I'm going to read a bunch of books. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to do as much research as you want. And he does a ton of research, doesn't he? Like we just yeah. get a little, like in, in that little bit of time, like we get like, oh, he's found this old book. I mean, the Salem's Lot Library must be fantastic Oh yeah, for a town of only a couple hundred people or however many we think are, are in Salem's Lot in the 70s. It's got quite the uh, the supernatural archive of, of documents because he can go back and find out the history of vampires in Eastern Europe from, from millennia ago, it seems like, because he's got it all there and it's sort of amazing. Meanwhile. I go to my library in a small town and I have to interlibrary loan everything. <laughs> Matt doesn't have to interlibrary loan anything. But again, that he's in the hospital. So some of this is that he can't take any actual action at this point. Right. But it fits with his character that I'm going to do a bunch of research and then I will lecture you on what I found out. Yeah, absolutely. That That's the academic approach. It's to gather as much information as possible and then see what the common lines are and then read between those lines and see what wasn't captured in this historical text and turn that into a new interpretation, new information. It's an angle that our Katet needs without the tools to defend themselves, without understanding what they're up against. I don't know that their success is even 
possible. Well, you might think that, but then we have Mark. Yeah. And Mark does have just as much information as Matt, but he's gotten his through a different way. It's all monster magazines and Saturday afternoon horror movies. Mm. And so it's a balance between Matt and Mark. And, and Mark's actually able to put that into action. Yes. Like, whereas Matt's just sitting on it and lecturing people, Mark instinctively knows, okay, here's what we need to do. We need a steak. We need garlic. And I know what will happen for the monster movies. I'm not going to invite you in. And the steak that you've got is not going to work because it'll split. you got to bring hardwood like I've got, and we're good to go. You're making me hungry. Steak, garlic. <laughs> What's next? Butter. Mm. <laughs> and then, of course, Callahan looks at all of this through the eyes of the church. And while he's having his own struggles with his own faith, and, and he's kind of a little bit at sea when it comes to how he can serve the church, he is not willing to ignore what the church is and how he fits into its structure. So when Matt asks him to basically, hey, you know, be one of us, the, the vampire hunters in Salem's Lot, Callahan takes this very seriously and he, he won't just set aside what the church requires of him. Hmm. He is a representative of the church. And as he puts it, the, the, the church is a force with a capital F. So if he's going to come at this as a representative of the church, you need to understand, you, Matt, we, the audience, we need to understand what that means right. and how much you're asking of him. But he is a practical guy and a pretty fearless one, so he's willing to take on the challenge. Yes, and it, he does it even though at the same time he is struggling with his own faith. Mm -hmm. It's that balance of faith versus duty. Right. Like, I don't know how much I believe in this, and I don't know if I like the way that the church is going, but if I'm going to be a representative of the church, I'm going to do it to the fullest extent that I can, because I respect and honor it so much. Exactly. Uh, it's almost like a, a soldier, right? He's a, a soldier of God in this case. Like, if I'm going to do it and take yeah, the orders, so. I'm, I'm going to do it this way, but you're going to get what you're going to get with that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it takes a pretty good writer, which I think King is, to be able to move from these different characters' perspectives and make them all seem real. They all seem authentic. Each one of these characters is authentic to their their job, the way that they're expected to act. Um, not all writers can do that. Some writers get stuck in one person's perspective and are unable to say and make believable, hey, this is what a down-on-his-luck priest might think. This is what an older teacher might think. This is mm -hmm. what a writer might think. But King's able to move through that and you don't get the sense that he's either undercutting any of these characters by saying, yeah, this is what this person thinks, but they're wrong. Or this is the one that you should be paying attention to because it's the smartest, because it's the most like me. I think each one of the six characters that we talked about seems like a very realistic character and acting in a way that we would expect them to, that even though they're different perspectives, are really moving the story forward. Yeah. And they all kind of make up different building blocks of... Uh of this quartet in a way that their perspectives, the lenses that they look at this threat of vampires is very much complementary. Yeah. Whether it's Susan's gumption to, to just directly confront the vampires and Mark's as well, or it's Matt's willingness and ability to sift through tons of information to find maybe that one bit of info that can help them. Independently, they're probably not going to have any chance, but together their chances improve dramatically. Yeah. So we've already hinted this, this a little bit, and we've talked about it in previous episodes, but it adds such an interesting layer to the 
story that all of these characters are aware of vampires in some mm-hmm. way. And it just adds that piece of meta text on top of the book itself. Yeah. In my notes, I wrote meta meet meta because <laughs> everybody is in this story, a fictional character, and they are aware of the fictional universe of vampire lore. And then they go so much further as to like research vampire lore and learn more about vampire lore and talk about movies about vampires and then take that information and twist it back onto the characters within it and say, okay, well now we're going to fight the vampires with the information from all this stuff. So it's like, and there, there's a scene where the characters are aware of the fact that they're in the same type of peril and make the same terrible decisions as characters they've seen in horror movies. Like Susan, when she's creeping through the woods towards the Marsden house, she's thinking about how this is just like those silly characters in the in the monster movies that are doing all the wrong things that gets them killed. Yep. And what happens? She does all those things. She's <laughs> conscious of the parallel. She's conscious of the fact that she's doing the bad thing that the characters do and the same thing happens to her. Yep. So it's like yeah, it it's the snake eating its tail for sure here and I love it. Yeah, and I wonder so Susan thinks that the movies are silly and yet she does what she does and ends up getting killed. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that Mark doesn't think those movies are silly. Like they're almost his holy grail, the movies yeah. and the monster magazines and the models. Like he's bought into all that mm-hmm. and it works out for him. He knows what to do. Um, Cause he still has that childlike perspective, just enough of the childlike perspective to like, he can take them seriously without any irony. Yes, and there you that's, go. that is his strength. Yeah, because he's able to be like, okay, we do need a stake, but what you've got's not going to work. Yeah. And we do have to act carefully, and but this is how carefully we're going to need to act. And here's the things we need to do about. It. And even when Susan is in the basement and he hears her and then he hears Barlow say something, he knows like I'm not going to be able to save her. Nope. My best my best bet is getting the heck out of here. Mm-hmm. Because a, a a character in the movie who thought the movies would silly would be like, I'll be the hero. I'll go down and save Susan. And he knows he's not going to be able to do that. Yep. Yeah. And we, I mean, I, and now I think it'll be interesting to see where Matt's information leads because it doesn't seem like it's going to lead anywhere. It all becomes this philosophical discussion between he and Callahan. And meanwhile, there's people becoming vampires, like while they're talking yeah, left and right. <laughs> and yeah. Left, yeah. I was like, okay, stop talking about this and do something. So, just like we have a quartet of vampire hunters, we have what is now becoming this you know, group of vampires. Mm. And it's ever expanding every day, or I should say every night, that, that <laughs> is, it, it continues to expand. But there's also sort of this circular nature to it that like Barlow is aware of the hunters and, and aware of their bond to each other, even before they themselves are which is really interesting. It seems that his vampire powers give him this uh, ability to not only influence people's actions, but sort of maybe be aware of their own thoughts or their own instincts. Mm. And that gives him a big advantage over the average person because he can kind of read minds and manipulate their actions. And that's how, you know, he can just walk up to people and, you know, they gaze into his eyes and the next thing they know, they're lunch. Um, (laughs) 
So Barlow takes advantage of this power to break up the Coctet even before they realize that it is formed. And Susan is the first, I guess, victim. Yes. Susan's the first casualty of the Coctet. And because Barlow has this power and his power increases once somebody becomes a fellow vampire, Susan in being turned has given the entire game away. As soon as he feeds off of her blood, he knows all of her friends, all of their plans, who's supporting whom, and it's this seems like doom for the Cotet, right? Agreed, agreed. And it also seems as if he has Barlow a psychic connection with his spawn, his thralls. Yeah. In in one way too, because when Dr. Cody and Ben fight off Marjorie Glick, they're fighting her off and then she starts laughing at them and and yells out, even now one laughs, even now your circle is smaller. And the way the king writes this, that happens before we find out what happens to Susie. But it's almost as if Marjorie knows, right? Like, mm-hmm. even though it's happening sort of instantaneously, like if you work out the time, it's, it's shortly after sunset. So this is when this is all happening. That's the moment when you get the sense that Barlow must have done something to Susan. Absolutely. Yeah. And their circle has become smaller. And like you said, they don't even know it's a circle. And even now one laughs is Barlow must be the one laughing because he knows all this. Yeah, Straker doesn't have a sense of humor. It's gotta be Barlow. <laughs> it's gotta be Barlow. <laughs> Straker seems like one of those guys who thinks he has a sense of humor but doesn't. Yeah. He laughs like ha ha. Yes. I will get you, young boy. It'll <laughs> be the end of you. Your family <laughs> jewels. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Quite humorous. And going back to when they're attacking Marjorie Glick, they're able to use a little bit of their vampire knowledge, Ben and Dr. Cody, to create a tongue depressor cross. Yeah, it's a cross. It's a cross that they, you know, make with some medical tape and and tongue depressors. And then they pray over it, the two of them. And is that what imbues the cross with the power? Or is it the vampires being afraid of it? Or what what gives it? Because the, the... Tongue depressor cross actually glows and causes physical harm to Marjorie Glick vampire. And it's unclear, like, did they make some sort of magical weapon here? It certainly seems like it. And it also seems to be a circular magic with the vampires. Because when they tape the two tongue depressors together, they don't immediately start to glow. When they say the prayers over it, they don't immediately start to glow. Right. It is only when using it in defense against the vampire that they glow. So it's like the vampire itself is what is imbuing this sacred symbol with the power to glow and also repel yeah. the same thing that's making it glow. So it's a it's a strange kind of self-fulfilling circular <laughs> power thing. Because when, in the earlier part of the book, when Mark instinctively grabs that plastic cross Mm. um, from his monster collection, it glows too. And not because it's a (laughs) glow-in-the-dark cross, it glows because it's in the presence of a vampire. And it hasn't been prayed over, it hasn't been blessed in some way. And obviously in, in the real world, there are crucifixes in churches that, you know, they're not glowing at all times because they 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 are a holy you know symbol but maybe if a vampire walked up to them then they'd start to glow and it's like well yeah do vampires somehow yeah. make crosses more magical than the very faith that they represent i don't know yeah it seems like they do 
Well, that's how it worked in Little Sister of Zaluria too, right? That dog with the cross on its chest. Mm-hmm. It was just walking around. Roland was yeah. like, hey, it's just a dog. And it had a random shape in its fur. Yeah. But it didn't glow. No. Or, or maybe it did because it was a mutant dog. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I think one of the things we have to talk about is when the circle of the Katet is broken and the vampire circle is expanded by one, it might be a little problematic that it's the one female character in the book that's on the good yeah. guy side that is being killed first by King um, and that becomes a vampire. And really, if you think about it, not a lot of the women in this book are portrayed in a great way. So Susie's sort of portrayed nice and she's immediately killed. Marjorie Glick dies early. The other woman's beating her baby and is acting weird after her baby dies. Uh, Susie's mom's not necessarily the nicest of, of people. Yeah, she's I, certainly unsympathetic. Yeah, I hate to I hate to bring it up, but we talked about this so much when we were covering the Dark Tower books, how King didn't seem to know what to do with Susanna throughout a lot yeah. of the story. She at least survived and was a important part of the content. Mm-hmm. Here, Susie just doesn't even get a chance to do anything. She She decides that she's going to take some action when none of the guys give her anything to do. She takes that action and it gets her killed. Yep. In a sense, King is kind of fridging her. And now that's going to be even more motivation for Ben to just avenge his girlfriend, right? right. And that's a really big missed opportunity. King could have made her much more heroic. She clearly had the development and the importance as as one of the characters to be one of the keys to overcoming the vampire threat. Maybe she wouldn't make it all the way to the end of the story, but maybe not have her be the first to, to fall. Yeah, as we know, not many of these characters are going to make it to the end of the story, we don't think. Yeah, but have her go out and like, uh, you know, like sacrifice herself to save somebody else, or like to save Mark. Or or at least get into the second half of the book. I mean, even if she were the, if she died first, have it so that she's not just like the two of them are knocked out and tied up and she happens to be the first victim, right? right. It's like, no, Mark, you're still a kid. You go escape and I will hold you know, yeah. I'll hold Straker back or I'll I'll be Straker's, you know, I'll distract him just by making him chase me to the back of the house and you can escape out the front door. Something. Instead, it's just like, meh, it just randomly happened this way and off she goes into vampire land. Well, I have a feeling just by the fact that Susie's floating outside Mark's window that we, we're going to continue to see Susie for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there's that. She's not <laughs> gone from the story. Yeah. <laughs> but she's no longer an ally of our... Of the main characters. That is true. But who knows what developments King has for her going forward. Yeah. Maybe she'll learn to throw Ryzas and shoot with her heart. Aim, not with, her aim head. with her. Yeah. <laughs> well, since you brought it up, it sounds like we're getting close to Dark Tower Thinnies. I did not have a whole lot. I've got one here that I'm going to say, Jay, and that is after Mark has been trussed up, he's able to use his Houdini trick to get out of the knots that Stryker's held, which is, again, another nice little meta thing, right? He's so familiar with monster magazines. And I mean, this kid sounds like me when I was a kid, monster books, magic stuff, Mm -hmm. Saturday afternoon movies. Like, yeah, I totally relate to, to Mark. So he uses the Houdini trick to get out and he's probably only got one chance to get away from Stryker. And King says, and some distant gods, perhaps seeing how much luck he had manufactured by himself, doled out a little of their own. That's pretty close to Ka. Sounds like Ka to me. Yeah. So that's my Dark Tower thinny. Yeah. 
I only found one as well, but I really felt that there was a scene when as Susan was creeping through the the woods approaching the Marsden house, there's a line, her heartbeat and respiration were up, yet her skin was cold with the capillary dilating effect of adrenaline, which keeps the blood hiding deep in the body's wells during moments of stress. Her kidneys were tight and heavy. Her eyes seemed preternaturally sharp, taking in every splinter and paint flake on the side of the house. A deeper watchman than her five senses had been wakened after a long season of sleep, and there was no ignoring it. That, to me, sounds just like the fever that gunslingers fall under when mm. they're in battle. Yep. Now, I know that can lean both ways here, like, oh, that's just the physiological effects of adrenaline. Like, this, that's what happens. But this is exactly what King writes when Roland is in battle mode. This is what he writes when Eddie and Susanna are in battle mode. And when those newer gunslingers feel this for the first time, they connect that very much to what it is to be a gunslinger. And this is Susan stepping up to the plate. It's a risky move, but that's what gunslingers do. They mm. take risks and they do heroic things. And in this moment, she's a gunslinger. So I thought that was a thinny. Yeah, I, I'll give it to you. And I, I love that metaphor, a deeper watchman than her five senses. That's just a great line. Yeah. Yep. We are going to go to a review that we recently got on Apple Podcasts, Jay, that talks a little bit more about the Dark Tower. And this is from listener Stinky Otis. Which is an awesome handle. Good to hear from you, Stinky Otis. So Stinky Otis says, I'm a Stephen King audiobook junkie. My eyes don't work so well. A couple of years ago, I began my addiction with the Dark Tower saga, hooked. After listening to a couple dozen more of King's work, I've returned to the Dark Tower. This time I'm going through with this podcast. Feels like I have someone to talk to. Thank you for your opinions and arguments. It fills the gaps for me. I'm still a couple of years behind, but now I will catch up soon. And that's a five-star review. And thank you very much for that, Stinky Otis. Yes, thank you. Always great to hear from listeners like yourself. And we're really glad that we can help enhance your experience as you journey to the tower yet again. Yes, indeed. So speaking of thanking our listeners, Sean, yes. I think we need to thank some of our patrons today. Oh, that's right. Uh, we have started our Patreon account, and we have a number of folks who have started our community. So we want to give thanks to Max P, who has joined at the Cotet level. Thank you for being part of our Cotet, Max P. Yeah. We also have Aaron H, who joined at the Gunslinger level. Thank you, Aaron. And then at the Apprentice level, we have Sarah E, Tim M, and Old School Gamer. Yes. Thank you all. If you would like to support the show like these other patrons have and get access to exclusive Patreon content such as bonus podcast episodes, visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. We also keep a list of the names of our top patrons on the support the show page of our website, twoguystothedarktowercame.com. So if you are a patron, you can see your name in big, bold letters there. Excellent. Well, that was fun. So let's move on to fun stuff. Let's do it. Sean, I can't seem to stop finding these Shawshank Redemption connections. Oh, my. <laughs> Although this one kind of stretches things a little thin. It's Sunday, remember? The ME will be out in the woods someplace with a rock hammer. He's an amateur geologist. Outside with a rock hammer, eh? Oh, uh, yeah. Kind of like Andy Dufresne and what he used to carve his chess pieces and tunnel his way out of prison. That's right. So we meet another cop that's uh, on his toes in this section, and that's McCaslin, the county sheriff. And he gives us with two fun stuffs in one, Jay. 
He suggests mm-hmm. to Ben that he should write books like Travis McGee because a man can sink his teeth into one of those. So you get the Travis McGee reference, which is always welcome and always I'm looking at, but sink his teeth into those. Man. Indeed. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Wow. That wasn't very subtle at all, Stephen. Yes, but it was delicious. <laughs> if we're going to refer back to additional King books. This seems like a prelude to on writing. Matt is describing his former student, Miss Susie Norton, who used to write such well-organized themes with paragraphs like building blocks and topic sentences for mortar. And I'm sure she didn't use any <laughs> adverbs at all. No, not a single L-Y in sight. <laughs> so when um, Mark and Susan are sneaking through the Marsden house, Mark lays his hands on a book. And the line in the book is, he opened the book at random and flinched. There was a picture of a naked man holding a child's gutted body towards something you couldn't see. He put the book down, glad to let go of it. The stretched binding felt uncomfortably familiar under his hand. Yeah, pretty, pretty gruesome book. But it also made me wonder, could this be a copy of the Book of the Worm from Jerusalem's Lot? It's some sort of weird uh, book for nefarious purposes. So I think you're onto something there. Yeah. So I've just got a couple of uh, cute little things. They talk about the fact that part of the woods that they're in is owned by a paper company, most renowned for asking patrons not to squeeze their toilet paper. There's a little <laughs> Charmin joke for those of you uh, old enough to remember that. I like how King like avoids naming the product specifically, and he doesn't just say toilet paper. Yeah. I just finished reading King's latest book, The Institute. And there is a paper company that is serves as a shell company for the nefarious institute there. So um, I don't know if there's a lot of paper companies up in Maine near all the woods and the logging or if King has something against paper companies, but uh, they're mentioned in that book too. So 40 years apart, he's still talking about paper companies. I suspect it's just the matter of the, the surroundings. It's a lot of logging there. Yeah, makes sense. And then when uh, Ben and Dr. Cody go to the funeral home to check on the body and, you know, Dr. Cody's got it in so they're able to see it. But the mortician makes a joke. If she says anything, write it down for posterity. (laughs) And then he looks at them and they're like, oh, they're not laughing. Either my joke didn't go over or there's something more here. Well, you know, mortician jokes aren't always the best, but. (laughs) I hear they kill. Oh. (laughs) Knocks them dead. Uh. <laughs> one one last thing that was uh, <laughs> one last fun stuff I had Mark Petrie when he's escaping from the Marston house he thinks of it in cartoon forms and again this is just playing back to his character he thinks of himself like he was running so fast he could have slammed through the door if it had been locked and just left the outline of his of his uh, body going through it which is just a great visual because anyone mm-hmm. who's ever watched a Looney Tune cartoon immediately can imagine that. But it so fits into character with how Mark would feel. And it's just a nice little moment of fun stuff humor in the in the horror of this. Yeah. And I could easily picture like the theme to Benny Hill playing <laughs> as he's running back into town. <laughs> What's that that song called? Yakety Sax. Yeah, Yakety Sax, yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad that we're ending on such happy fun notes, because I'm sure everything's going to turn out good in the next section, right, Jay? Yeah, there won't be any tragedy in in this story. (laughs) 
Well, we'll find out next time, because that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Salem's Lot, Part 3, Chapter 14, Sections 1 through 24. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Oh, that's a really good point. (laughs) Yeah, George Lucas is definitely the best director ever. (laughs) We will be playing Yakety Sax in this episode. Uh huh. Do 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 do